0: Welcome to Mundane's Truth Talking. Tonight we'll be discussing Indigenous business, the good, the bad and the ugly. Indigenous owned businesses has been a core part of the government's Indigenous advancement strategy and also a core part of pol- policies to increase Indigenous economic participation for the past decade. Indigenous procurement policies in government and the private sector have driven the creation of thousands of indigenous businesses it's time to take stock and ask what has worked what hasn't and where are the gaps there's no self determination without economic self determination and business is at the core of the economy economic growth and economic prosperity indigenous business creation is a nice is not a nice to have it's essential I want to talk tonight about the opportunities that have been created and what Indigenous people should be doing to grasp those opportunities. And I've got together a really good team for uh, Mundine's uh, Truth Talking, uh, uh, Indigenous Business, the good and the bad and the ugly. So I'll, uh, I'll introduce the good, Nancy former former multimedia journalist and Executive Director of M. Nearest, a communications PR, marketing, and media company. And I'll leave this up, these two blokes, up to who's going to be the ugly and the bad. But James William, entrepreneur, advisor to corporates and government. Darren Godwell, uh, CEO of Eye to Eye Global. Okay, so let's let's start off by talking about what is the current situation, what has been achieved, and where are we at with Indigenous business creation. I'll start off with uh, you, Nancy. Yeah?
1: Mm-hmm. So what have we achieved? Oh, there's a, uh, I think that most people wouldn't realise the breadth and the depth of the number of Indigenous organisations that are operating in Australia today. There's really uh, an, or- an organisation or a business that can fulfil pretty much any, any of your business needs. And uh, for me, that's been a great realization as I've gone into business myself uh, this year, only in March. Um, but I have a company that I've been running for four, fourteen years, but not as a full-time um, pursuit. So, you know, I think that um, I'm not sure what the numbers are, but in terms of Indigenous business, it is uh, the fast. It's a faster-growing sector than the non-Indigenous business um, businesses sector is. Um, and that was actually proven through, uh, I remember from in the GFC, when Indigenous businesses grew um, through that period when other Australian businesses went backwards. So I think that's a testimony to the strength of those Indigenous businesses uh, and the sector that where we can see those kinds of outcomes now. And uh, I might leave it to other people to talk about some of the, the breadth and the, the depth of those businesses because, I, you know, they've been in it longer than me, particularly Darren. Ooh.
0: Yeah, Darren's been around a very long time. Uh, look, uh, this, <laughs> uh, well, during, the, during the day, tonight, we just relax. Uh, we we sort of, people can jump in and, and talk at any time and, and if they want to raise something that's important they want to raise, and, then j- go ahead and do that. Except we don't want to have a uh, uh, US presidential-style debate <laughs> where everyone's jumping in and beating each other up. We just want to start, you know, just... Talk and talk and push push what you think of the opportunities. So so Darren, uh, we'll go to the elder of the night and you uh, know what do, what do you think?
2: Uh, so Nandi's point about the breadth of Indigenous entrepreneurship and enterprise is also significant. Um, we've seen again with um, we've seen again with Indigenous enterprises that uh, when given the opportunity, they really do rise to the occasion. And we've also seen um, a a generational shift going on where we've had individuals moving out of the public sector and into private sector. And as part of that, we're seeing that example now going back to school and school leavers, whereby we're seeing a greater number of Indigenous high school graduates moving straight into the private sector and uh, moving into large corporations and and then moving into um, medium-sized enterprise as well. So... um, it really is, yeah. Really is something to see uh, in this generational shift, and the last twenty years in particular has given us uh, a lot of great examples of indigenous enterprise and entrepreneurs and business development.
0: Yeah, James. So, what do you, how do you assess the current situation?
3: Well, the current, is, um, the, the current situation is, um, I, I'm pretty optimistic. But I think, yeah, I mean, as, as we get into it, I think we can probably talk of some of the some of the sort of challenges that, that lay ahead. But I think the the introduction and also the point that both um, um, Nancy and, um, um, and Darren made is, I think, both very, very relevant. That is, 10 years ago, if you asked, you know, um, let's say you asked a corporate, um, you know, a, a, a large corporation or you asked government if they knew any Indigenous businesses, they could probably only list a handful of them. Um, whereas I think the... Um, the number the, the the type of the scale the size um, and also the, the you know the, the sort of breadth of you know industry or sectors that these businesses span across in terms of delivering goods and services is incredible and that growth I don't know whether um, and it, it, it'd be interesting to really know you know the, the sort of you know the, the sort of startup history of those those, those businesses whether those businesses proceeded you know the um, I think you know as we know in the last 10 years there's been a a significant shift in both government and corporations in in um, in their sort of um, you know their sort of procurement policies that really support um, or preferencing indigenous business because of the very nature of those businesses and what they do and so it's it's really it's not it's not about uh, you know I think it's not just about giving you know uh, the business owner an opportunity it's more about the behavior of those businesses that that corporates and governments invest into because of the fact that they're great incubators are great vehicles to create economic wealth they, they're great employers of indigenous people so they're some of the sort of fundamental things of why indigenous business are important in the ecosystem um, and 10 years ago um, the numbers that individuals knew of indigenous business was probably just five or you know um, uh, you know and th- there was a particular business i think that federal government referred to for, for 10 years i mean 10 years ago as the only indigenous business they knew and it was a fifty percent owned, owned business uh, with Leitons at the time, um, uh, and and traditional owners in in Western Australia. And similarly in Queensland, there was probably only one that was that was sort of considered by government as an indigenous business that was operating in the market that they could supply to government. Whereas if you look at if you look at the situation now, just in Queensland alone, which I'm fairly intimate with, um, there's probably around about 6,000 um, 6, indigenous businesses. Um, uh, you know, they they employ. I think probably about fifteen thousand people or something like that so some a fairly significant number with with you know employment rate of around about um you know the 60 70 in, in indigenous employment which is you know i think significant and why they're so important in our ecosystem because they're they're great incubators they retain indigenous people in employment they train them they develop them they're likely to invest more so they're the sort of things i guess that that really are the big drivers behind why indigenous business is so important to our ecosystem to our industry
0: well, look, look. I'll just rattle off some figures. It's it's been amazing, you know, what's happened over the last few years. I, I looked at the uh, the government website uh, today, and it was over three billion dollars worth of contracts that are going out to Indigenous businesses uh, across Australia. And then you look at the mining industry, and you got you got probably. F- nearly three or four billion dollars there going into indigenous business you're looking at a then you look at the state governments and the private sector so you're seeing this amazing incredible growth which is you know you know it's been around for a while but in the last five years it's just exploded and and i and look i work in the uh in the investment sector and 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 uh, and I and I do a lot of work in the other corp in the corporate world, and and, and I haven't ran across anyone who doesn't want to engage and work with indigenous businesses. So there's this, this tremendous, incredible opportunities that can that can be done out there. So 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 let's just move on a little bit and see where where okay we've got all these great opportunities and that. So what where are the gaps? Uh, what needs to be done? Uh, you know, business creation in in mo- remote areas is you know. Uh, Still a bit of a struggle and and need to be, you know, how do we take advantage of some of this mandatory set aside rules in the Indigenous procurement policy? But also, remote contracts uh, under the IPP have been lagging uh, according to the last, uh, you know, available data from the the National Indigenous Australian Agency. So, so what do we need to do there and look at it? I'll probably
3: have a crack. Oh, okay, okay,
0: James, go on then. Okay, I'll have a go.
3: Um, look, I, I think there's a couple of things. One is, um, you know, probably in the last ten years we've we've spent a significant amount of time. And yes, I mean, you know, we've we've got this. I, I think we've got to get granular. That's probably the, the the short of the of the long story. We've really got to understand that businesses alone, just because you're an Indigenous business, doesn't necessarily mean that you you will behave exactly the way that that. That your, you know, the client expects to deliver value the way that the client and why we leverage and why we we um, we preference Indigenous business in some instances is because, as I said before, it's because of the na- their behavior and, and and the way they create value in, in, in communities. And where you've got significant economic disadvantage, Indigenous businesses are, are critical enablers that actually one, they capture that that, that, that revenue, and they're all also able to distribute it and 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 circulate it in in the economy. And they have ability to make an impact in local uh, lo- local economies. Um, you know, and where you've got significant disadvantage, I think they're one of your f- fundamental building blocks. The interesting thing is is that, um, you, you know, the I suppose the, the bigger challenge for those businesses is whether, you know, they're able to, um, uh, you know sustain or deliver on those broader values in, in in a sense of the type of behaviors that we we want to incentivize as the right sort of behavior um, and some indigenous businesses are not necessarily great employees of indigenous people um, that's just the reality um, um, but you know on a whole that's 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 why we they're, they're so attractive um, because they they're incubators they develop they develop employment um mm-hmm. opportunities for indigenous people so i think that's that's one of the issues the second is is that um, the pre-qualification standards around procurement is is it often, particularly with um, agencies, is that what we've seen, particularly in government procurement, is that while the big numbers are being met, they're possibly, and I'm and and we, we have to really interrogate the data on this. So I'm just going to say, maybe this is based on more an- anecdotal than anything else, is that there's a there's a high likelihood, in my opinion, that a lot of those um, um, businesses are being won by 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 existing suppliers, but it, but it's not. Actually, it, it's not, um, and and th- those suppliers are probably being preferenced in different locations. Whereas, one of the things that's really important about indigenous business, a local indigenous business operating in a particular region, is likely to create and 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 distribute value in that location. Whereas, someone just moving around and and you know winning contracts and whatever else is just operating like any other business, um, and you know they maintain a high employment, but they're not going to necessarily employ local people because. Part of the challenge is obviously the skill and the, the lack of you know capability or supply in that local market so i think that that issue around targeting and growing indigenous supply that is indigenous businesses in locations where we want impact such as remote or regional communities where you know there's not very many successful indigenous businesses a lot of the aggregation of those businesses probably sitting in you know in, in 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 the more sort of richer pockets of, of the country and where the significant, where there's greater disadvantage, we're not as strategic as growing supply. And so I think there's this issue around supply, indigenous supply, that we're, we're not looking at, we're probably not looking at data well enough to understand what that means and then focus our investment into growing businesses in those ta- in in those target markets. Because that's really what you're that's the driver of your economic growth, if you like, for those local communities, if you can actually grow those. Um, you know those, you know, local ecosystems with businesses viable. You know, Indigenous businesses operating in them. Uh, I only know one community, for example, in Queensland that um, is championing that and has done well. In five years, they've been able to grow Indigenous businesses. But that's because the CEO and the mayor of that local, you know, Aboriginal community made some very, very clear policy decisions about how they do that. And that's in Lockhart, um, Lockhart River. Not many people do it like that. Not many people are strategic. So.
0: Yeah. so uh, that, That's interesting. <laughs> I, I gave some figures just a few minutes ago in regard to, uh, you know, like the federal government's direct funding of Indigenous uh, affairs is about $4 billion. Uh, indigenous businesses now pass that and it's well on the way of doubling and moving forward in such a short time. I'm, You know, we're only talking about five years, five years of this amazing in growth and that. Now, now, uh, you know, and James has raised an important issue about, you know, uh, like with Rock, uh, Lockhart River, you know, they're, they're the ones who are actually tough. Do we need to have some of our, you know, community councils, community groups and that look uh, look at how they can have the indigenous entrepreneurs and support them and have in their communities and how they can move forward yeah Darren. definitely
1: yeah. I think oh I'm sorry. sorry Darren,
0: no, no, Darren. No, no, look well,
1: I, I had um I had a thought because you started out asking about how can we boost indigenous business in remote and I suppose regional areas mm-hmm. and for me it's I think it's a really uh, a great opportunity for us to not just create business, but to also um, maintain cultures, because you know that is one of the greatest assets or so the unique selling points that we have in Australia and for our own communities is the fact that we have a culture that is you can't find anywhere else in the world's oldest living culture. So I think there's lots of opportunities in those regional areas for us to build businesses um, that that uh, bring a well-being back to. Uh, the communities through the activities that they do and in some ways bring back I think the traditional roles of people that they may have played in the past and and that's I think it's a, uh, a reinvention of that in a contemporary sense so I think you know coming from a Torres Strait Islander background the obvious one for me is fishing you know there's an industry there which we're experts of and have been doing for a very very long time but you know the, uh, even though it would seem to be quite simple, and I know that my grandfather operated purling luggers way back in the early, you know, 1900s, um, but that sort of isn't present today that I can see. Um, mm-hmm. And there's other um, op- fishing or uh, operators in the region. So I want to know what it is that's um, preventing those, um, the communities to be able to pursue those things that they love doing, the things that make them feel better. Uh, and bring well-being not just to themselves but to their families, and and it, and it um, you know perpetuates those traditional skills. So I mean, I'm also thinking of in the Kimberley region and in a, throughout the Northern Australia. There's a the Kakadu Plum Alliance. You know, there's a whole bunch of opportunities. I think in traditional medicines, in um, in in foods, uh, in skincare products, and you know, I'm thinking of Auntie Pat um, Torres who uh, runs yeah. My Harvest up in the Kimberley region, and you know, she's providing a great business there for mob Um, uh, with the kakadu plum they're harvesting them they're doing three tons a year uh, and on, on a good year they do five tons and you know what it's doing is it's bringing those skills and you know the opportunity. I think to to unite generations of Indigenous people together around the traditional harvesting of those kinds of products. Um, so you know it brings grandma, uh, auntie, and then the the grannies down as well. And and the other thing it does that she told to me was that in the Christmas season, it, that which is sort of around the time that they harvest or shortly after, um, it brings in income that you know is kind of strapped after that you know, that Christmas season the the and um so there's there's lots of opportunities I think in cultural tourism. It may not be uh I'm not sure what the procurement opportunities are for those kinds of businesses. Um but there probably is some kind of procurement opportunities. I know that you know the sort of the Defense Department run all sorts of facilities around the country that um have canteens and they need a you know a food supply and and we all know too that you know some of those um, unique products that we've used for for centuries uh, are really good for us in a in a health sense. They're really good for other Australians too. So they have very high nutritional or superfood value. Particularly the Kakadu plum. I mean, I know that Kerry Colbung is also you know providing. Um, Uh, skincare products out of Mundunga and um, it's a balm that her grandma and her mother sort of passed on to her and she's going great guns as well you know um, with a with just an online presence and you know she's thinking about and she wild harvests at the moment while she's thinking about how does she scale up uh, to be able to meet a much bigger demand especially for something that's an ancient remedy that has application and it also brings well-being, not just to us, but for for everybody. And I think there's a really big need for those kinds of things, let alone um, other cultural tourism opportunities. Like, the, you know, Kai Theatre is a very obvious one to me in terms of dance. There's, there's bushwalks and getting to know plants and animals. And, and uh, yeah, so I, I'm really looking forward to see how that space can work um, for our communities.
0: Yeah. Uh, look, you brought up a lot of good... Good point, there, because of course you know that 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 cultural knowledge that IP uh, is so important in that. And before I go to you, Darren, because we've been discussing this uh, on on the export uh, panel on that as well. Uh, you know, I just got to, got to do a plug for the the Good Source. Uh, thanks to the Good Source uh, uh, News for hosting our live stream tonight. If you want news you can trust, if you want media that isn't compromised by. A- anti-everything narratives, you want the good source. Go to the good source uh, news to hear from some of the best uh, conservative thinkers in Australia and New Zealand to hear independent voices uh, on a free speech platform. Now, Darren, we've we've talked about this. In fact, I'm glad you brought up Pat as well, Pat, Therese, uh, because I just only interviewed her last week on, on what she was doing in her business and, and it's amazing some of the stuff that's going. And I, like, I, I, like, I also like the range of programs because you can develop them into good uh, cultural tourism, eco-tourism type projects where people are doing their culture at the same time as, as having a commercial operation and that. So, so, yeah, and we've spoken about this a, a fair bit, Darren. So, so what do you think?
2: I think at the, at the very outset, um, yes, we've seen rapid growth. It's been off a low base. So, you know, that's, that's only natural. But I actually think we're, we're very much on the way to a $100 billion Indigenous economy. Um, and I, I borrowed that from Carol Ann Hilton in, in Canada, a First Nations uh, woman. And she's also challenging uh, both business and investment to imagine what's possible for a $100 billion indigenous economy in Canada, and I think we're not that far off um, setting in place some of the fundamentals, but we're at a critical juncture, I believe, where when we see the future of the of northern Australia and the development and the ongoing development of rare earths and large-scale renewable energy projects, we start to imagine um, bush, uh, you know, bush ingredients or indigenous botanicals, We start to imagine export markets and and reaching into new market opportunities in international space. We're actually talking in the tens of billions of dollars. And I think part of maybe the, the challenge for policymakers and then obviously the challenge for private investment in Australia is to actually consider that a possibility. Uh, we we are in uh, you know the very very near future. I believe we're going to see the first billion dollar transaction as an investment into an indigenous controlled enterprise. Um, I believe we're a little ways off, but we're we're in the you know we're in the race to see the first one hundred million dollar indigenous company by by market valuation. Um, and I do believe that we're also going to see the opportunity for exports grow to a hundred million dollars so worth of exports so yeah these are challenging numbers for many people that are more accustomed to a life of um public policy deficit and and then the politics of disadvantage um there are a lot of people that are going to be challenged to even imagine it's possible for indigenous interests to, to actually be in control of of multi-million dollar businesses and to 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 guide and shepherd investments into the hundreds of millions of dollars, but I believe that is very much, you know, within the next couple of years we're going to see that eventuate.
0: Yeah. Look, and, uh, and uh, yeah, look, I, I I see businesses virtually on that hundred million dollar level now. Uh, so you you know we're going to really move into that area, which brings up the question, you know, so because we're going to have to have an educated stream of people coming through and that so is is the university sector uh and the school system ready to really pump uh students through in regard to th- knowing that they can actually run their own businesses and 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 install them in an early stage about that
2: well uh i think this issue around formal education um is 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 good for some professions, but I, I wonder for Indigenous Australians if we wouldn't be better to promote the the power of individual initiative and and enterprise. Um, there have been more than a than a few successful business people um, achieve great things and build wonderful companies and create much shareholder value. Without ever having gone through an MBA program or a university program, and and I think there are a lot of family-run businesses which um, bring people through into the family business uh, without those formal qualifications. I, I would I would rather put in place initiatives that support individual enterprise than to funnel people to a higher education path, and. Um, there is a lot more to be said for tr- for learning from your mistakes by being in business and by being around a business so I would, I would i would i would say we should caution any kind of fundamental push or direction into universities for that purpose yeah yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And I- so what what
0: is yeah nancy
1: well, uh, on that point, Darren, I think, you know, what I see in successful business people is that entrepreneurial spirit that I, I might say, you that zealousness and they're such dynamic people that, you know, going to courses isn't usually what they want to do either. I mean, it, that, if that sort of system just operates far too slow, mm-hmm. I think, for the people who want to to get things yes. going, yeah? And I think I'll put myself in that kind of category, you yes. know, it. it the pace can be controlled by yourself when you when you start your own business, and you can um, explore, uh, follow your own nose, and, and seek out what it is you need to get that business going, and um, and that's a really good learning experience in that. Just by talking to people and and following people that inspire you, and, and in the sector and all the associations and and so on and so forth. Um, when it comes to building a business. So, I mean, it's not difficult to identify a business, hopefully, that hasn't, you know, that hasn't been made before in terms of the sector. We're not creating new sectors. It's just the new ideas for meeting markets that we, uh, we need to think more yeah. carefully about.
2: And, frankly, if you on funding, I would rather suggest we'd send, you know, an entire cohorts of Indigenous kind of prospective entrepreneurs to a place like Israel. Um, you know to, to learn from people that have demonstrated enterprise and business development. you know I'd, I'd much rather we, we learn by example and and yeah you want know, you want to you know, you look at wonderful examples like you see in, in places like Israel who have built economies and then built entrepreneurs and supported uh, new industry uh, at a very rapid pace. And um, I think there's there's a lot of merit in going and looking at you know, the example of others that have succeeded.
0: I couldn't that's, agree that's 100%. more. hundred percent right, James. Yeah.
3: Sorry, <laughs> no, I was going to say that's hundred percent right. Um, you know, that's 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 the view I share, and with with all of the you know the the speakers this evening. Because um, look, I, I think formal education is great, but um, you know, the first and 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 the best business um, lesson I learned, I ran a business when I was fifteen uh, for my uncle, and that taught me so much more. Um, you know, it taught me the fundamentals around cash flow um debt um uh, you know customer service uh entrepreneurship you know all of those fundamentals um never forgot them um and you know i got the bug very young um he was inspiring um and he was one of the first entrepreneurs that i saw you know in in a community that was welfare driven you know the whole economy was welfare um and, uh, and, you know, the, the, the funniest thing was that because I was, uh, you know, I was a very good servant and when I worked for him, he started pimping me out to other, the other business owners that were, you know, small micro enterprises. So I, I kind of I learned a lot sort of doing that. And, uh, and it was the best lesson in the world. Um, uh, but I think, you know, coming to the point uh, where Darren uh, spoke about, you know, places like Israel, I think lessons in context uh, in communities, uh, I've always been a, cha- a, a champion of this idea that you know we should, when children, I think, I think children are you know particularly in remote communities, particularly in disadvantaged communities, if their lesson in life is uh, around economics is welfare, then you have to locate businesses and and other type of platform that exposes them to different type of dynamics and teaches them about risk, because the fundamental issue i think that really uh, welfare kills and this is one of the most pernicious elements, of i believe that welfare does to human capital uh, particularly our, our human capital that we care about is that it actually it it dents it 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 blunts the, their, their 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 acuity their their the commercial acuity and that's that that sort of entrepreneurship or th- that sharpness and risk is a really big thing about business is that really great operators in business understand risk they intuitively understand what it is because what they are really managing is is isn't an, is is an, is an organization or, or an entity or a baby effectively that has to be nurtured fed and and, and developed and that means mm-hmm. to be prioritized it to put it in the right you know to always put it as, as being preeminent and important um, whereas i think when you look at the social cultural issues that that often people talk about, like, you know, whether it's employment or in business, the humbug, you know, issues. It's all about those values actually challenging, um, you know, the, 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 the prioritisation of why businesses and, and, and principles around business are important. Um, things like leakage is a, is a classic problem where businesses have been typically managed in the past. We, you know, we talk about, you know, leakage. Well, leakage is simply just people ripping value out of a business. Um, whether that that's through stock or, or basically poor cash control or whatever um, you know um, most businesses really worry about the you know the revenue side but you know when you listen to conversation rarely people talk about cost and cost is actually where where the discipline is the great practitioners uh, are, are really about managing that risk because they know that with you know you can make money if you you know there's always going to be an opportunity to make money it's how you that might bring you bring us a segue that you create, sorry, mate,
2: that might bring us a segue over into the bad part because,
3: yes, uh, yes. Yeah,
0: <laughs>
2: that, yeah, that leakage you know, is, is poor business practice, is what that is. And the other thing that's in there, I do believe, too, is um, when we're looking at, at viable businesses, it is about fundamentals like cash flow and then building, you know, building revenues to the point where they. Contribute to your bottom line and your viability. And um, if we think about one of some of the frustrating parts around Indigenous enterprises, it's the there's been a degree of of putting people on cotton wool and sparing them the consequences of making poor business choices. And and then we've also had a multitude of non-Indigenous players in there, uh, masking as Indigenous enterprises. Controlled by non indigenous interests. And then they also kind of spared the consequences of bad business practices. And so, you know, there are a couple of bad parts where, which is at some point for it to be effective, people need to enjoy the consequences of their bad
0: choices. I like that word, enjoy the consequences of their bad cho- choices, because, you know, I've learned in, in business and that, uh, you know, for quite a few years now is that. I've learnt more from a mistake. Uh, I've learnt more from watching other people make mistakes and I've learnt more and I've learnt so much from uh, different people and then and then you look at why you made that mistake and you come out better. In fact Look, the best business people in the world—you know—they have all made mistakes. It's not one of them who hasn't made a mistake, and 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 some of them have been pretty costly. We, you, I always use the line about one tell where uh, Lachlan Murdoch and uh, James Packer, uh, you know, lost a billion dollars. So <laughs> these things do happen. But you've got to—the the main thing about, well, good thing about being an entrepreneur and running a business is how you get up. Off the ground, you have just been knocked down. It's the third round in the box boxing fight, and you have just been knocked down. You're sitting there going, "Gee, this is tough." So, what have you learned? How you get up and yep. and, and then continue, and that, and that's that's the secret to to business, really. Hmm.
2: Warren, the other part that's in there too is that linkage between risk and reward. And if yep. if you don't understand and appreciate that, you're not entitled to a big reward without taking some risk. And, Some risk. and taking risk is not the same as being risk avoidant it's it's about managing the risk and about saying okay then how much are we going to put at stake on this bet and then how are we going to mitigate those risks and obviously the people that can execute better by managing the risk to realize the reward are those indigenous executives which are going to be in in tight you know tight supply and high demand you want to be able to re those Indigenous executives with that experience and have had the bumps and the bruises to be able to move into those ventures because when you start dealing with bigger and bigger challenges, the challenge on execution absolutely escalates but that's where you need to mitigate that risk with with having good experienced Indigenous executives.
0: Uh, that's true, and I, I learned a lot from because uh, I went to a Catholic school. So I went, uh, there's a lot of migrants in my school, and, and these and this is a group of people who come just off the boat, and they could hardly speak English, and but they had that entrepreneur spirit about, it and they wanted to start a new life and do amazing things, and that's what they did. And and uh, and and the, the second generation, when you get to their children, the second generation, uh, these are the people who who are uh, built and saw how their parents worked and how hard it was for them and they they're the ones who built amazing businesses in Australia and you can you look at it, the stock exchange in Sydney and and you'll just see the titles you just see the people who have done that and this is this is the most important part for us is is how do we get that how do we get that into into our communities and that that you that you and support them i'll give you an example of bad bad issue what there's this in when i was in dubbo that this company there is making about a hundred thousand dollars a year washing the wheelie bins right yep. he going around charging charging people five bucks ten dollars to wash the wheelie bin anyway the local cdp brought it and uh they got this young aboriginal guy he was running around doing it in fact he grew the business he actually started growing the business and uh and then he thought to himself oh you know i'm just working for, cdp why don't i put to them that i can buy the business and so he he talked to uh, he talked to the uh, to the local uh bank i think it was westpac and they said yeah yeah we we, you know we can loan you the money to buy that business so he went to them and said i want to do this and i said oh no no you can't do that this is a community development cdp program and we're not we're not selling it to someone to run off and, and run a business and so of course what he did he he left and he went off with him and his wife those had a young couple 22 21 and they built a business somewhere else that business after he's left collapsed within 3 months and so you know I, my advice to him would have been you would have get, should have gave it to him for free and he would have built a business and he would have built a future for his family yeah.
3: mm-hmm.
1: so is this,
0: so how do we get how do we get around some of that stuff yeah,
1: yeah. It's an interesting thought, I think, too, you talked to, in terms of the bad. I think one of the, I don't know if it's bad, but it's, a, it's fairly um, evident to me that a lot of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander businesses aren't necessarily, um, um, don't necessarily have a vision to be scaled up. But there's well, What I do know is that there's a lot of Indigenous businesses that are there, what I like to call subsistence. So they're basically replacing their work uh, what they previously had, to be their own bosses, which is a really good thing to do, I think, for health and well being, and, you know, to, to be your own boss and to control things around you. Um, and um, rather than scaling up, and when I'm thinking about scaling up and meeting a bigger demand, I, it reminds me of um, Nicole Stewart and her father um, in Melbourne and their business, and I think his name was John, forgive me if that's wrong. Um, and he, M- Nicole Stewart now runs uh, a very large um, operation called, used to be called Complete Work, Workwear and uh, at Tullamarine Airport and they actually have for many, many years since uh, I think about the 80s, he's actually started in the 70s out of the back of um, the boot of his car, um, washing laundry for the airline industry and now they're massive and you know I, I can't tell you what the exact figures are but you know, there's a, a handed down business that started from something that was, you know, needed because he didn't have any other income and, you know, it's very much a rags to kind of um, Rich's story, I think, in, in that sense and, you know, what they're, well, they're the sort of stories that I think we need to have more of, like how do we get those um, those tiny little operations that maybe start out of the boot of your car or in the garage of your house and how do we get them up to, you know, scales, to build the skills and then, you know, we also know that Indigenous businesses... Um, employ more indigenous people than any other businesses do and they actually create more value in terms of the professional development pathways of the people within them um, just ask Nicole you know she used to work on the floor in the in the laundry factory and now she's the CEO so I want to you know if there's another yeah. business I think of print Junction that's doing a similar sort of thing here yeah. in Adelaide yeah so how, that, that's that's one of the bads I think how do we how do we make that leap Ooh.
0: Yeah, which is what you're pushing for, uh, uh, Darren, in regard to looking at how, how people can uh, export and grow their and, and scale up and grow their businesses.
2: Yeah, that, there's um if we look at where mainstream businesses and enterprises are, and there's a there's a spectrum and there's a universe of possibilities. And so one of the challenges that we're trying to address is we're trying to 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 kind of build those you know that architecture we're trying to physically find place where we can incentivize and support small businesses indigenous businesses become medium-sized enterprises and then turn to say medium-sized enterprises become large corporations um, we, we also need to see a, a bit more of uh, those indigenous enterprises moving into publicly listed uh, on stock exchanges so, the export opportunities if you think we do live on an island and um, there's a big economy outside of these shores and frankly there are a number of indigenous opportunities which will have appeal into those export markets Um, and then in addition to that there is a lot of direct foreign investment into australia and a lot of that investment may find a home a suitable commercial home With Indigenous enterprises, whether they be large-scale agribusinesses, whether they be as proponents of development of of natural resources on country, or what I think is going to be a very, very exciting possibility is the use of Indigenous botanicals um, in both products for export, uh, so manufactured goods, um, also the use of Indigenous botanicals and possibly their use in uh, therapeutic goods. Um, We think about something that's truly Indigenous, that belongs to this place and that is unique and is a a, a selling point. Um, We start thinking about Indigenous cultures that are from here, but you can also imagine the Indigenous botanicals and the wealth of possibilities that exist in those botanicals. And, you know, frankly, we we should see something established very shortly, I believe, uh, at a formal level, which would ensure that Australia and Australian companies benefit from the commercialization of that indigenous knowledge,s and those indigenous botanicals.
0: Yeah, exciting, exciting stuff here. Look, uh, uh, yeah, you raised it earlier, uh, Nancy, in regard to those uh, botanicals. Uh, you know, the, the the scale up that could happen in regard to uh, to uh, uh, indigenous uh, uh, foods, indigenous. Uh, uh cosmetics and stuff like that uh, do, do, do you see a, a really good growth area a really great opportunity for that to happen
1: yes i do i i think it's i, I said at the start you know that there's actually more businesses out there you could than you really do you can imagine and i think there's mm. a lot of people in that space already um uh, and, and but they are those small-scale businesses that you know people are operating out of their own homes, perhaps. And so I think that um, the one thing that might help um, for those, uh, particularly in the sort of botanicals um, uh, sector, and the use of native ingredients, is is the fact that you know we we somehow need to rest control of that asset that we have, and the asset that we have is that. Indigenous intellectual property knowledge and so we need to make sure that we rest that back and keep it for ourselves um, because it is ours and it has been for a long time through you know lots of years of history Um, and I think that needs to be recognised in the current space because of you know, one of the keys is, you know, I talked about Kakadu plum before. There's there's heaps of non-indigenous businesses running that Kakadu plum um, farms up in the Byron Bay sort of, you know, northern coast area of New South Wales, um, and they're bigger scale operations than our own. So yeah, there are lots of opportunities. I think to be able to give our our mobs um, and their their local communities, you know, I think due credit and value for that knowledge through that the IP recognition of that. And I know that there's a food database that they're putting together through um, the MasterChef chef, Chef on Fry. So I'd like to see how that, um, you know, um translate i suppose into better opportunities for our mobs to be able to, to to turn that into enterprise that benefits our communities um and at the same time as i said before you know it it's it um it maintains culture and keeps people on country often as well or well, if they're not on country all the time they get to go out there and through the operations of those businesses and that's really good for your soul the spirits.
2: there's a very good made here for investments very similar to the way the the French and the Italians have have asserted their rights over geographic indicators. So, for example, wine that's produced from the region of Champagne in France is the only wine that can be called Champagne. And they had to assert Mm. those rights, which had commercial implications and benefit, obviously, for the Champagne region of France. And There are direct parallels where Australian national interests are actually going to be well-served by us exercising that same assertion over Indigenous botanicals because, frankly, we're not that far away from seeing another superfood move into a global market, whether it's quinoa or kale or blue corn or whatever, but there's every potential for that to happen out of Australia. And so unless Australia asserts its national interest in those Indigenous botanicals and then puts provisions in place for us to commercialise that in a way that that's done with Indigenous interest, then um, we'd be shooting ourselves in the foot. And so there's a great opportunity for for some of that early work to go in. And frankly, if it's not from here, then um, you can't claim it as a, you know, as a product, you know, that's using um, a key Indigenous particular as a key active ingredient. Mm, And it
1: should be recognised as such. you know I think it's there's, there's benefits not just for us but for the whole of the Australian economy if that can happen and I'm thinking about you know the macadamia nut which is one of my favorite nuts and it's ours, but everybody thinks it's from Hawaii you know there's a really good example of of, of something we need to rest back and that really could benefit Australia as uh, you know the country of origin of that of that food
0: yeah. yeah Darren and I and a number of other people have spoken about this a lot in fact I had a, a webinar only on Thursday, uh, yeah, Thursday with, with with Ken uh, White, the the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, and it was about planting that seed in, put planting that seed in his head uh, about this 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 geographic, this ownership, this uh, intellectual traditional ownership of, of that. And the French and the Italians have been good leaders in this area. Oh. So, so so so, James, what, uh, what do you think about you know sh- should we we re- be pushing the government to do that type of uh, legislation for us?
3: Uh, absolutely. Uh, look, I, I think we should be. Um, I think it's a policy issue um, and because it looks, it's almost like, uh, you know, the extension of the sort of native title rights or whatever um, to, you know, to, to botanicals and, you know, to flora um, effectively, um, uh, you know, as having some sort of, uh, you know, that sort of Indigenous sort of rights, you know, sort of focus. And, and the reason why is because that security of rights is important because there's so many unlocked opportunity in Indigenous, in the Indigenous sort of estate, the broader sort of, you know, um, you know marketplace for Indigenous people. But where they're going to be beaten is that somebody is much more, much better resourced uh, with better model, you know, Know, they can leverage all of that if, 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 if there's no, if, if we don't, if we don't protect some of that, uh, or, or give some preference to indigenous people around some policy, because I think, um, I'll give you a classic example. There's a, a whole heap of stuff that I know because I was raised by my grandparents uh, in the Torres Strait around, you know, natural, um, you know, whatever you call it, botanicals or pharmaceutical, you know, there's some, there's some amazing products, and I will never tell anyone. <laughs> uh, unless I can actually secure it, because the the reality is is that the minute you tell someone, someone can go off and um and, and leverage that, and before you know it, they've got a product on the market using the exact thing that that Ab- uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been using for centuries, for, for thousands of years. So I just won't. And yeah. um and in fact, I was talking to my older brother about this the other night, we're, and we were sharing some of our knowledge, and uh, and I said, don't say any don't tell anyone. But, but quite frankly, it shouldn't be like that. Uh, it, it shouldn't be like that at all. It, it should be that that right, it, it, which is really a common right or knowledge that is being shared by uh, by Aboriginal Toson people, should be held and secure so, so that they can leverage it and unlock it and 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 create business out of it. And and if the industry and other people want to come into it, Indigenous people still have some ability to benefit, whether it's 10 percent or 20 percent or whatever. But that but but they have some sort of buy-in whereas I think often and and I suspect that industry has already been has, has, has been smart about this they're already documenting and they already know some of the you know the the, the sort of you know the, the natural you know, the natural um you know botanicals or and and you know the pharmaceutical qualities and they've already and we know this from research because that's one of the issues around ethical research is that people go into community and they build their phd learning taking uh, appropriating community knowledge bringing it back and giving it to university. Um, um, you know, the interesting thing is, I mean, you talk about, um, you know, this issue around uh, copyright, um, and I'm not sure where this particular, um, you know, um, business is at, at the moment, but Myuma, for example, uh, uh, um, uh, which is, um, you know, it was a civil contracting company, but now it's expanded to a whole bunch of other things. Uh, I remember that, you know, in, in more recent times, they're now looking at because they've gone into a sort of research, you know, joint venture with the University of Queensland um, around um, using spinifex. Um, I, I think it's I can't remember the sort of technology they use, but I suspect that it's um, it's 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 using nanotechnology to extract the the you know the the cells out of uh, out of out of the spinifex grass. That uh, uh, when when you put it into, into 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 rubber, it actually makes it ten times I think or hundred times stronger than than, than the, the strongest rubber that you have available in the market today. Now, I remember, I, I know Colin Saltmere personally, and and um, and and I know that um, that's something that he had to prosecute for his own community. But, but you know, he was in a real strong position because he'd been successful in business and worked, you know, through that process and had very good support. But he also had, also had good leadership to be able to do that. Not many Indigenous people can actually protect their rights like that. So yeah. I think that's where it's really, you know, this is where it's really vulnerable. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's a big challenge. Um, yeah. I don't think we invest in development and unlocking opportunities but the first thing about developing opportunities with indigenous people in, t- in terms of those opportunities that are locked inside community because of their knowledge or some other means but they don't have uh, they don't have the capability the finance and everything else to do it it's the fact that we don't prioritize that development because, because nobody wants to pick up the cost.
2: We have a couple of, yeah. You know, we have a couple of precedents. So, for example, um, when the Australian economy was in its fledgling years, um, there was a public investment into wheat, uh, in yeah. a public investment oh. in yeah.
0: um,
2: We saw the creation of the Australian Wheat Board. We saw wheat the cre- creation of the Australian Woolmark. Um, we've seen where the public sector has stepped in and rightfully supported Fledgling industries, and and there's a real advantage in that, and we have multiple examples of where it's been very, very constructive and a very positive thing, and I, I think it's it's due you know for us to consider something very similar for indigenous botanicals, and that's a you know that's a significant commitment to research and development, um, looking at things of production because we got to get to you know we got to get out of wild harvest for some of these, and we have got to start looking at, at mass production. Um, We've got to look at manufacturing and processing. Um, We're obviously looking for some of those downstream activities where we can capture some of that value by seeing that happening in manufacturing, and Nancy has indicated, in regional and remote Australia. um, You start looking at supporting regional economies in this way. Uh, And to do that would require a commitment and and to say, listen, this is something we're going to do. Um, downstream the benefits are, are going to be well established and they will have to be with 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 australian companies and and then uh, indigenous peoples there's no reason why indigenous people shouldn't be looking to attract investment capital to take a place in that value chain so you yeah, very good points
0: yeah. yeah they're great points and obviously that 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 secret you have uh, James is is a beauty product because you're looking very handsome uh, <laughs> which, sort of, which sort of leaves you as the ugly Darren but anyway <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that, that raises a few questions but w- like when you're talking about the IP and and the protection of that IP and and we've just seen the battle that's just ar- arisen out of the, uh, the the Aboriginal flag in regard to 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 the the IP rights of that, uh, so we've got to be very, you know, I I agree. We've got to you know do very uh, move down this path of of protecting our IP and protecting that those those rights, and and that will have a. Big, big flow onto the rest of Australia as well, because we'll have a we'll have mm-hmm. some really incredible industries that are coming out here. We'll hire, yes, we're hiring Aboriginal, and Torres Strait Islander people, but we'll be hiring everyone else. But also, uh, people can subcontract off and do transports and other things and and that. Yeah. But we've got to be. Uh, but there, there is that sort of question, which could be the uh, you know the, uh, that sort of uh, uh, that, you know w- how do we ensure that we don't end up getting it at who this property right fight and, and how we work through it. You know, that's 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 a that's a big question. Yeah.
2: There is there is um you know there is something to be said for leaving lawyers out of this and coming up with commercial responses <laughs> or commercially legal responses. Um you know a lot of people will be thinking about trademarks and patents and you know, kind of moving down to protecting IP down that path and you know, they're, they're, they're reasonable conversations to have, but I've usually found that whenever you invite a lawyer in, the, you know, whatever the outcome is, usually involves keeping the lawyer around again, you know, and and I'm not so sure they're so commercially minded necessarily. Um, you know... Except of, my
0: wife. she Except my wife. She's listening.
2: <laughs> one of the things I actually want is I really want to see that emphasis on the commerciality. You know, frankly, if, if, if you create businesses... That protect their IP or commercialise that IP. Um, if we can create viable businesses, then the interests, obviously, you know, are, are well established. But sure. There is some opportunity for investment as well to have a real part in this because, obviously, if you've made an investment, you've got a vested interest to see in a return on that investment. And I think yeah. that's very one of those very powerful factors yeah. in the in the free market is that once the market makes some choices is going to be looking to protect their investment. And, um, you know, I, I think that is something that we should be offering as Indigenous interests. We should be saying there is a market opportunity here and, and can we attract investment on those favourable terms to make yep. a financial return, to seize and commercialise a market opportunity. Yeah. There's it,
1: also... Oh,
0: sorry. So, no, go on, Nancy. That's good.
1: So, there's, there's also, you know... In the time of COVID, I suppose, and you know the Black Lives Matter movement and um, climate change, in particular, too. There's also, I think, hopefully a growing. I, I think I see a, a growing um, desire for the Australians and other people around the world to not just invest in something for profit, but to invest in something for the future of our planet our people as well and there's lots of you know I think positives I think um, because of that I I would say there's a bit of a shift that has become evident and I I hear people I I seem to hear this chatter that's sort of getting a bit louder about how do we make sure that if we're going to run a business you know it's not just for profit it's here it's not just for now it's also for the future and then we you know the people that and businesses that are looking at carbon Neutral um, impacts, and I'm thinking of fire management um, up in the Arnhem Land area where the, the rangers look after, uh, you know, they burn earlier in the season and smaller rather than um, later in the season and, and, and prevent those larger um, bushfires. Um, and that really does help to make a positive impact on the planet. So I think that as Indigenous people, we also want to look after the country. And I remember to bring up Barney Pat again, you know, she said that when she picks the kakadu plant, they make sure they don't damage the plant so that, and they don't damage the land around so that, you know, it's able to refruit up to, you know, more, I think it was three times more than normal uh, plantations uh, in terms of that um, output. So, you know, there's, there's if we're going to, have businesses who want to make sure that we are offering something to customers, and I'm from a marketing background, of course, um, you know, that they want. They want to feel good. They want to make sure the planet's good. They want to make sure there's something in the future for their children. And, you know, they want to make sure that everything that we've got now is there in the future for um, generations to come. So I think that's one of the selling points that we can try and think about, and I think that Indigenous business and people have that sensibility towards protecting the planet and our people doing it as well.
0: Yeah, uh, we're getting close to time. Uh, uh, it would have, you know, very quickly. You know, one of the one of the uglies, of course, is how uh, some people have manipulated the process by, you know, with the black cladding stuff. And so, how do we, in, uh, you know, how can we uh, really, uh, you know, defeat that that beast? Because I think there has to be some uh, stronger rules coming in. And, and James, yeah.
3: Um, that's a very interesting question Warren because I'd probably take a quite an interesting sort of position on it and I'll talk very quickly on it and that is yes it's true that in that situation where people where you've got some indigenous owners that are supposedly just owner owners on paper but they are very passive in the actual operation and management of the business but I think it it also masks some of the some of the deeper issues I think that policy actually creates some real challenges and I and I I think we probably had this discussion um, a few days ago, and I mentioned that one of the big challenges is that if you had an opportunity to, let's say someone came along and said to you, hey, um, let's do something and, um, you know, and I really want to make a difference, work with Indigenous people, but you know, I've got, I've got, um, I want to give you some equity in a company, but I can't give you, you know, uh, 50% equity because the, the, the company is a fairly sizable, very val- valuable business, and so I can only give you 20%. Um, but we're also going to be committed to working with Indigenous people, i want to maximize employment to move it up to 50% you know have some really ambitious targets plus i really want to grow you as an owner that that to me is not black cladding black cladding but it but it isn't an indigenous business either uh, based on current definition because current definition is either 51% if it's based on a certified business with supply nation or a indigenous a majority owned indigenous business um, or a 50-50 is basically you know um a, According to the Commonwealth and also other, some states and territories, um, also an Indigenous business. So, so I think this policy issue um, masks some of the broader concerns I have in the marketplace around cladding. Is a cladding to me is where someone is just, you know, someone on the surface of things is just, you know, appears to be the owner but is not active and doesn't right. doesn't understand the risk. But if you were to take the risk of having um, equity in a business that's worth twenty percent. And it's a twenty million dollar business. You also take the risk of failing, so you might be up for the cost. So this it's not just like,
0: This sounds like a, a longer discussion, and that look, look, some really good stuff tonight. You've raised a lot of really good, in, uh, interesting things. Uh, great conversation. Uh, thanks, uh, Nancy, for coming along. We've got to get you back. You know, we've got to get the good back, and and uh well, I'm sort of stuck with the ugly in regard uh, to James and Darren, so uh, uh, thanks, for, thanks for being on the show. We're gonna, our next webinar is going to be in two weeks' time, and we're going to be looking at the, uh, uh, what's coming out of the uh, coroner's report in regard to uh, uh, children in the Northern Territory, and there's some really damning stuff that we need to, need to confront and deal with because the, uh, the, the government up there has really failed and let down our kids. Okay, so I'll see you in two weeks' time and we'll have a discussion. It'll be me and uh, Jacinta Price and we'll have a, a sort of armchair conversation. So
1: good night and thank you for everything.